it's highly unusual in, in history that you would have, uh, you know, a small elite of of of, of what of the very wealthy with the very powerful who would just come to the conclusion that that they should run the world. As the world begins to resume some form of quote-unquote normality, many would argue that we are witnessing a continuation of the challenges to civil liberties, democracy, and human rights that were experienced throughout the world during the pandemic. In addition, this is to rising costs of living, inflation, and other economic challenges in the wake of COVID-19. It's also evident that the global centralized organizations such as the World Economic Forum are advancing their efforts to capitalize upon the crisis and drive forward the idea of a uh, new social contract. Are these trends likely to represent a temporary overspill following the somewhat authoritarian responses to COVID-19 around the world? Or do these represent a longer term trajectory? To help us to understand these issues, I'm joined today by Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, a nonprofit organization that was founded in May 2021 with a vision of a society that places the highest value upon the voluntary interaction of individuals and groups, whilst minimizing the use of violence and force, including that which is exercised by public or private authorities. He's a distinguished fellow of uh, Austrian Economic Center in Vienna, a research fellow of the RMIT Blockchain Study Group, economist at Forbes, chief liberty officer and founder of Liberty.me. Many of us have heard of the work of Brownstone during the course of the pandemic when we were seeking to understand the impact of the responses to COVID-19 upon our lives and our livelihoods. Your articles in the American Institute of Economic Research on the effect of lockdowns have been widely shared by many. Uh, and it's fantastic to see the work that has now been done within the Brownstone Institute, where you're offering a wealth of articles by distinguished experts and have even published some books in this brief time since inception. I'm curious to open up, uh, Jeffrey, by uh, really exploring the rationale for you beginning your work with Brownstone. What what led you to uh, take the, the the step, really, of, of forming an organization like this? I'm really curious to understand um, your personal take on what's happened over the last couple of years and, and why you've taken such action. In March 2020, I thought it was a brief mistake. It was just a kind of error that took place uh, that uh, we pursued these these uh, wild policies. And I had assumed that they would go away in a couple of weeks. I'd, actually, I'm surprised they lasted that long. Uh, <laughs> I kind of thought that that uh, the lawsuits would pour in, uh, that people would wake up to the demographics of the death, we'd start looking at the science and see that there was a wild overreaction and that a small cabal of intellectuals had somehow grabbed hold of the reins of the power all over the world and had done very bad things to us in contrast to our entire history, you know, since the Magna Carta of trying to limit uh, uh, government, uh, arbitrary government power. Um, but that didn't happen. It just kept going on and on and on. And so by the next year, um, I began to realize that, you know, there's something much more substantial going on here. And that we're actually threatened with opening up in, uh, uh, the, the end of the liberal era, you know, broadly conceived in that, in that sense. And we can talk about what that means. But it seemed to me there's, there's a fundamental challenge at work to everything we're, we, we believe about ourselves and, and, and our public lives and what kind of societies we want to live in. 
that this whole thing had mutated into uh, some sort of a, a ghastly machinery that we had never encountered before, really, not in our lifetimes, or really in many generations, if that. So, you know, it doesn't fit into any of the old categories of, oh, fascism, oh, socialism. You know, this is um, a different kind of uh, technocratic dictatorship, really. That's a fundamental challenge to everything we have been taught to believe all of our lives, and it's remarkable how quickly it happened. So I knew that we needed a dedicated institution that would examine this bigger uh, problem to deal with the research burdens of figuring out why it happened and to bear some of the burden of trying to reconstruct you know, what it is we're supposed to believe about ourselves and to understand why it is that infectious disease of all things uh, became the trigger uh, for inaugurating a, a kind of a fundal, fundamentally different era of life. And, and the reason for Brownstone is that I didn't see anybody else doing this, you know? Um, really, from, from January of 2020, I felt very much alone in this whole thing. You know, I wrote an article on January 20th, 2020, uh, saying that the worst thing you could do in the, in the case of an epidemic is unleash you know, unchecked government power against people. The quarantine power is what we called it in those days. Um, now we call it lockdowns. But um, um, I warned that this is completely inconsistent with any kind of rational disease mitigation and that it would uh, unleash terrible things in the world. And I was called an alarmist. People, you know, had me on podcasts and they said, something like this would never happen to us. I mean, the courts of law would prevent it. Uh, uh, people would rise up in anger. Uh, the, the the Congress would would uh, be angry about it and stop it. Um, but you know, uh, a month and a half later, we began to see all this stuff unfold before our eyes. And to my great shock, there was no public opposition that I could see. Um, and and then it got worse. You know, that was March eighth was the first evidence of lockdowns in the United States, imposed lockdowns, right? And that came one week after the New York Times had urged uh, you know, the, the, the disease planners to, to try a new experiment. You know, they called it medieval, but I mean, even in the Middle Ages, they didn't lock down, people were not sick, so it didn't make any sense, but... Um, so it was, it's, it's, things were moving very, very fast, and and uh, uh, I, I began to you know write about this uh, with all my energy, and I've written probably by, by this point. I mean, I don't know over the last two years of that. Um, not may, maybe not quite a thousand articles, but but uh, c- quite a lot, um, just to try to make sense of it. And what I couldn't believe really was just the extent to which all the people you you thought would would stand up against all this kind of stuff just went silent uh, which is still uh, a little bit mystifying to me i'm talking about people on the left who have been champions of civil rights and free speech and against segregation and and the people on the right who are you know for the constitution and for 
limited government and American tradition, uh, you know, you know, for that matter. Same, I mean, the same thing happened to UK, of course. And then you have, of course, you know, my favorite uh, gang, the uh, the libertarians, who, uh, how should I say, underperformed. <laughs> I mean, it was <laughs> unbelievable. So everybody kind of flopped and and didn't get better for for mm. a very long time. Anyway, that was the reason I started Brownstone because I felt like we needed some dedicated work, you know, with with some of the uh, serious, principled, scientific and uh, thinkers uh, who care about liberal values and really understand in a sort of tactile way uh, the practicality of liberty. Yeah, so I'd like to unpack, you know, you mentioned um, this kind of perceived end of a liberal era that has kind of been ushered in via this uh, response to the to the virus. And I think, you know, there were people who were just justifying this under public health grounds and that, you know, once the virus passes, you know, life will go back to new norm, the, the old normal. Uh, but in fact, we've got this new normal that's emerged where, you know, the, those, those traditional liberal values are still well and truly under question. Do, did you see, did you witness any warning sign of this coming prior to the pandemic? You know, were, were we already on a slippery slope? Was this an exacerbation of an existing trend, do you think? I mean, the answer to that is is yes, and it's easy to look back and see uh, all the ways in which that was true. Um, on the left, the censoriousness had already had already sort of ramped up, and and uh, I was very concerned. Uh, even two years before the pandemic lockdowns came, uh, the ways in which. Uh, you know, basic postulates of of global politics had, had come into question. I mean, I'll just give you an example. Um, the idea of decoupling, you know, uh, uh, the world technologically so that the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe would become completely separate from, from China. I mean, I, I don't know who came up with that idea. I mean, it seems maybe it was driven by Trump alone. I'm not sure. But that's inconsistent with, you know, 70 years of post-war uh, progress that we had made in, in the realm of trade. And, and also um, a bit of a millenarian uh, sort, of, sort of belief. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really it's, it's essentially inconceivable. Um, but Trump's tariff war, you know, was already, um, had un- unleashed several things. One was, you know... Um, Policies that were inconsistent with seventy years of progress, but then also a kind of kind of uh, autocratic decision making from the top. I mean, this is one of the things about the trade power in the U.S. is that Congress gave up its its authority to control that um, a, a very long time ago, um, around you know, just after World War II. So the president had the ability to do this, and you know, Trump likes to uh, be in charge. So this is, uh, this is something he could do. And, um, but just, you know, somebody would put a list of, of companies with, with whom the U.S. had a trade deficit, you know, in the order uh, in, in which they appeared, and he would just go through the list and, and start imposing tariffs one after another, you know, and this is just sort of not the way uh, uh, government takes place. Um, so yeah, gradually over the course of a very long time, um, the terrible things had 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 happened to our public life, and you know going back, 
in time. I mean, you can go all the way back, really, to uh, 20 years to the response to, to 9-11, you know, which, which was n n nowhere about, like, not at all about figuring out the ways in which we could reconstruct the world in a way that would be more liberal at all. It was never that. Maybe dial back some of the wars, maybe not be so provocative in foreign policy. But it was always about the answer to everything was more security provided by uh, the central government. And that was, that was the answer to everything. So, yeah, the decay in liberal values had begun long before. Um, but, I mean, part of me, and I try to avoid conspiracy theory, but part of me wonders if, you know, I mean, if there were some sort of elite cabal, you know, that had been holding, you know, infectious disease in their back pocket <laughs> for a very long time in order to, you know, to, to kind of deal the final blow to the liberal project. Uh, this is, this is, they certainly certainly deployed that in 2020, and and why? That's the great question. Yes, I think with these things, you know, it's 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 obviously complex, um, but history is a great teacher when it comes to crises, whether it's warfare, pandemics, economic crises. I think it would be very reasonable to to state that those with power and uh, ability and control will use the opportunity to advance their own aims because society becomes more vulnerable, the checks and balances start to fall away. And, well, we've certainly seen an erosion of just certainly in the UK, checks and balances, well, they they fell off a long time ago and they don't they haven't really returned, to be quite frank, which is mm. even more worrying. Um, uh, but there does seem to be a, a cultural swing towards this idea of safetyism, for your for your protection um i absolutely witnessed that following 9-11 and even more so now during uh covid um what what role do you see the likes of the wef the world economic forum you know th this 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 topic has been reduced to conspiracy in the mainstream press sure. but but the reality is this is a very influential group who very publicly have agreements with governments, um, uh, intergovernment organizations like the United Nations, it should be relatively clear. You know, we, we don't live in an era of kings and queens anymore in, in uh, you know, in, in the age of empires. We, we now live in the age of commerce and corporatism. So to what extent, you know, the, the palaces of old are replaced by the glass towers in the city centre, in the cities. To what extent do you think these types of organizations have, are playing a role now in the erosion of these liberal values. Well, there's always there's always going to be an organization, and it, it's hard to say that the organizations, you know, cause the conspiracy or whatever. I mean, it's, 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 I think what you have here is an imbalance of of uh, of power. Uh, all of these elites, the the these very very high level elite circles, where the very rich hang out with the very rich and. And and then they want to be around the very powerful and vice versa, and they've reconstituted their lives so they only have to be around each other and avoid any kind of, you know, demo uh, democratic um, interchange with anybody else, and so they this is this is what they've become, and um, 
and this is the way they like it, and this is the way they want to preserve it. Unfortunately, it puts their their thinking into a little into a little bubble. It's hardly it's hardly unusual in, in history that you would have, uh, you know, a small elite of of of, of what of the very wealthy with the very powerful who would just come to the conclusion that that they should run the world, and and so then that's the first premise, and the second one is well, okay, now what should we do with it, and so. So at the WF, you have every kind of cranky idea, uh, you know, imaginable, just you know, just spilling out all over the place. And you can go to the website and and read all about it. It's it's actually deeply embarrassing. Uh, but but liberalism, as traditionally understood, it's just not part of what they think. I mean, they they really believe in a kind of a top down management of society. And and as I said initially, this is not. This is not socialism. It's not. It's not capitalism. It's not communism, and it's not really sort of interwar style uh, uh, fascism as such. It's. It's really something different. It has something to do with, um, uh, you know, wild aspirations. You know, allegedly based in in science, mostly based in crank theory, and uh, that let's live in a world without any pathogens. Uh, let's get all of humanity on a subscription plan for our our, our new fancy uh, uh, drug technology. Uh, let's get rid of uh, fossil f- fuels. Uh, why is it that people are allowed to just uh, buy pets and keep them in their homes? You know, how come people keep eating all this beef when we can clearly, you know, just make a good beef substitute with my little uh, t- machine over here and so on. So you get these, you know, the sort of unfolding of these wild ideas uh, in these elite circles and their cocktail parties. And there's no check on them, you know? And and then it's very easy for this group to have disdain for everybody else. And so you've got people out on the streets saying, give me liberty. And they're like, I don't think you understand. Uh, your liberty is, 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 not, is not where we're going here. You know, it's just not... This is not what we're doing around here. Uh, your liberty is the problem. We're the solution. So this is the way they think. And I've spent a lot of time over over uh, the last couple of years trying to understand who these people are and and how it is they think. And Bill Gates is a good example of that. I mean, he's as good an example of, of that as anybody. But what's fascinating to me is that uh, I think this is very sort of malicious, it's nefarious, it's, it's dangerous, it's conspiratorial, it's, it's, it's wicked, disdainful condescending and uh, uh, deeply dangerous for the future of the world, but the fact is that uh, that what they uh, have attempted has not worked. I mean, so this is this is what's fascinating to me. You know, uh, they deployed this this machinery, and and now we're surrounded by the carnage, you know? I mean, two years of lost education that in particular affects the, uh, the poor, minority uh, populations, marginalized peoples, and uh, the working classes, uh, or the upper classes did fine. And this is not, these are not just small effects, you know? We've got a mental health crisis among, among the young. We've got uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of businesses, uh, small businesses that were destroyed in this country, while the big businesses uh, you know, I got richer uh, than ever. So, I mean, the missed cancer screenings, the missed, you know, childhood vaccinations, um, the, the the inflation 
uh, the uh, the supply chain breakages and good shortages. I mean, right now in this country, you can hardly get baby formula if you can believe it. It's like unbelievable. Uh, so so by any metric, they failed. Oh, and uh, by the way, everybody got COVID anyway. <laughs> you know. Yes. Yes. Uh, so. So really, December twenty one was was I think the great month of of you know of the big flop you know because they had been battling COVID for a year and a half, and then finally, the Zoom class, you know, decided to come out of their little hovels you know and instantly got it got infected you know uh, of course, and inevitably, and the the cases at least in the U.S. I think the same. I'm not sure about the UK case, but at least in the US, it was it was wild, right? The numbers in December of 21 uh, made everything, you know, just ridiculous. Every previous proclamation of victory, you know, uh, every metric, you know, every oh celebration of this policy because that policy caused this. Look, cases are down. Oh, the masks worked. Whatever. Well, December 21, it just blew everything up, and, and they all look like like. Like complete idiots. So this is a major problem, I would say, for for this crowd. I mean, if really uh, you were given the chance of a lifetime to to reconstruct the world order with with one goal uh, to uh, minimize uh, COVID infections or or really eradicate the thing, like a lot of people wanted to do, and it doesn't work. Now you've got a problem. You've been discredited, and that's really at the, at the, essentially where we are right now. Uh, public health authority, really all over the world, is is in is living um, in disgrace. But you'll notice there's very little um, uh, admission of of this at all. It's just like hardly anybody's willing to admit error or uh, much less apologize for it. So we've got a huge tension right now in the in, in the world, which is why sometimes it feels like the anti-lockdown movement has, has got a populist flavor to it. Uh, but that's just because uh, the lockdowns were imposed by the you know the zero point one percent, and and everybody else was the victim, and now everybody else is super mad about it and extremely upset, um, and we're not getting any. Uh, truth or honesty uh, and forget justice. That's nowhere near where we are. So th- this is going to be a very long battle. And my, my strong sense is right now, for lack of a better term, the ruling class really wants everybody to forget, you know, about about what happened to us. So now we're supposed to think about Ukraine. Now we're supposed to think about, I don't, I don't know what, abortion or something. You know, it's just they keep testing out other big, big topics about which we're supposed to, you know, care more intensely than the fact that our lives were destroyed over the last two years. <laughs> so, so this is this is going to be an ongoing battle. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, I mean, I've used the term common sense corner throughout the last couple of years when I've been analysing this. You know, if you've got policies that cause more harm on aggregate by a significant margin, then... There surely comes a point where, in everyone's mind, it's a case of, well, everyone got COVID anyway. We have destroyed people's livelihoods. The economy's in a really bad place. We've got a healthcare crisis, all of the things you've mentioned. 
you would have thought there'd be this just like gradual tipping point towards public outrage. But I just feel like the opposite has happened. It's almost as though people have just gone to this default mode, which is, well, if only we had this lockdown earlier for longer and we'd completely shut down and never opened up again, no one would have got this myopic thinking around a single pathogen as opposed to any other variable. You know, if you think about any entrepreneur or business owner, if they only focused on, say, you know, a single line of cost on their accounting records at the detriment of everything else, they'd be out of business very, very quickly because, you know, they're no longer focused on marketing, revenue, growth, et cetera. You know, they may have minimized a certain cost line, but everything else has fallen to pieces, customer service, everything else. But that's essentially what we've done for the last two years is focused on a really myopic piece. And it took to, to, to the... It, it hasn't mattered what the consequences have been. It, it, you know, even if it's a hundred to one or a thousand to one harm, it doesn't seem to matter. But you're absolutely right; that outrage just doesn't seem to be there. Um, and there's this this clinging on to this idea that what what that what what went 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 uh, before us is what will continue. The you know this this talk about applying the same methodology to flu seasons and you know, testing for every fiber of flu that circulates in winter. And it's this idea that humans can overcome through science any possible threat to human life. Well, to me, that's on one hand, it's noble that humans have that capability and ingenuity and innovation, but our lack of foresight to go beyond the point at hand and look at the second order consequences and the holistic impact of decisions is quite frankly worrying to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and imposed by force, right? So it's not just that, you know, they've got the science, but they've got the, uh, the experts and the power. Look, it's no different. <laughs> it's really no different from what it was like in uh, the early years of the Bolshevik revolution. Cause you know, uh, there was a, there was a belief on the part of, of, of of Lenin and and the Bolsheviks that uh, that they were the smartest people around. Uh, they had now all the power they needed, and they could get any resources they wanted. Now it was just a question of you know let's implement it, and the, the question was uh, implement what, all right? And so and so there was a, a, a bit of a loss of understanding there, and and Lenin at some point I think it was in the Second Party Congress of Soviet, I don't know, whatever, whatever, um, said, look, you can sum up uh, uh, communism in two principles. One is dictatorship of the proletariat. Of course, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, the second principle is the electrification of Russia. Okay, well, that's, that's a concrete uh, goal here. Well, they attempted it, and it didn't work, and people didn't want their stupid electricity. They were perfectly happy with their lives the way it was. And, and you know, by, by 1921, 22, there was mass starvation. So they, they dialed it back, you know, dramatically, and then there was a new economic policy. So uh, their plans failed uh, pretty, pretty rapidly, but it took, you know, a very, very, very long time for the ideological uh, conviction that, that they were right all along to sort of... Uh, and this is what I'm seeing right now with the lockdowners, because uh, uh, what you get from, you know, Bill Gates is out promoting his new book right now. Uh, he's doing a kind of a book tour, uh, and he's he's a, he's a little bit loose-lipped and, and a little bit a little bit nervous and a little bit a little bit goofy. So he's always misspeaking all the time. But if you wanted to summarize his outlook right now, he's like, our theory was perfect, our 
our aspirations were, were flawless. Uh, don't do, never question our theory and never question our motivations. Now, the implementation uh, was, was lacking in some areas. It's true. It's true. So, so he tries to consider we kept schools probably uh, closed too long. And if we had a better sense of the demographics of the impact of this disease, we might have more finely tuned, tuned the, the, the policies around that. But, hey, we've learned and we're going to do a better job next time. And there will be a next time. And there's there's no there's no fundamental question of the of the of the overarching theory of of lockdowns or disease eradication through human separation that that remains intact, and that has become like a religious doctrine to these people. So it's 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 tremendously terrifying, and I think that's what we have to we have to upend. Yes. Well, I, I don't think it's going to be limited to pandemics infectious diseases you know it's climate issues it's uh, agricultural issues economic issues we're the smart ones we know best we have the power this you know true technocratic approach yeah that's always that's always the idea you know it's the ultimate anti-liberal position we have the power we have the brains and we have the resources so therefore there should be no limit to our vision that's what they always say that's what they believe and that and the, the idea of liberalism is is fundamentally contra- contrary to that. It really stems from the belief that no matter your power, your intelligence, your resources, you're going to be better off with the gen- generally better social outcomes by letting people manage their own lives. Okay, that's the idea of liberalism, and that's been true for 700 years. Um, and that's what that's what that's that's what's what's come under fire. And you know you. It's very interesting to hear your perspective that you you see this as, um, by and large, people are uh, going along with this. So maybe that's true, but I think it really is very much um, class based and education based. You know, like Anthony Fauci spoke at the University of Michigan the other day, and they gave him an honorary doctorate. And I watched the video, and all the the entire senior class at the University of Michigan, these people were were, were imprisoned in their dorms kept from attending classes, paying huge amounts of, of, of money for a degree they're going to soon find out is not that valuable. Uh, but they had two years of their lives ruined. And instead of booing this guy, they cheered. They're on their feet cheering the great Fauci, you know? But why? What is that about? Now, I can tell you this. Uh, you go to a rural Texas community and ask what they think about Anthony Fauci, they're going to be spitting on the ground, you know? Um, uh, the, 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 it's, it really is a class-based uh, thing. So depending on how elite your education is and, and how, much, uh, how much you're sort of clamoring for that next tier of social status, uh, very much, I think, determines your, your uh, uh, degree of confidence in this sort of ruling class management of society. And so Fauci has become this kind of symbol of, of, of what... Uh, the elites want, which is to be in charge, to tell other people what to do, to use maximum resources to enact, you know, great shock and awe type history changing um, ex- experiments on society. So my read on, at least in American political culture, is that this is really very much class based. You know, whether whether you you love this idea and have confidence in it or you hate it and, and you despise it, which is why 
really disturbing American politics, like profoundly uh, disrupting American politics. It's, it's no longer the malleability, what's the right word? The mobility between uh, the uh, political loyalties has increased dramatically, you know. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear that take. I wonder as well your observations on the kind of generational piece because we've recorded somewhere, some, I mean, it's hard to keep track of how many episodes we've done because of the, uh, you know, certain episodes have been censored on certain platforms. So actually keeping a running total of actually how many we've done, but somewhere between 400 and 500 episodes in the last two years um, reach somewhere between 10 and 15 million people. But if we look at our demographics, I'm 38 years old. Uh, our average audience age-wise was sort of 55 plus. Uh, and we pretty much, I mean, we didn't have no one under 35. But if you look at the, the, the distribution of our viewership, maybe I've lost touch with the kids and I'm not cool anymore, but but <laughs> if I ever was. But this, this point, we've, we've got this older demographic that's been... The, the core listener base, if you will. And I've also entered now into other communities that are tackling other issues outside of the pandemic, but related to human agency. And it's this, I see the same patterns. You know, it's it's the younger generation have seen, not not completely, you know, I'm not going to say there's no one, but it, 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 I wonder if there's something here around liberal values and how young, younger generations perceive, you know, human agency, freedom, open societies, their their own personal agency to, to 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 direct and influence their own lives and the lives around them. What's your what's your take on the generational piece? I, I I think I think you're right. I mean that fits entirely with my read on the situation. And that was true very early on in the in pandemic. It became very obvious to me that you've got a, a kind of a twenty something uh demographic that was all in for lockdowns, you know. Um I mean, the first time I noticed this was, I think it was early March. No, no, it was about, yeah, maybe it was first week of March. No, it was the second week of March. I mean, it's like, it's amazing to try to reconstruct all this timelines here, but um, uh, there was a, uh, a distillery that I used to go to that, you know, they, they they make liquor and it was a very nice place and and, and previously when I would go there they 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 had a number of, of, of I guess you would say like um, clerks or or uh, uh, salespeople there uh, but one was a kind of a you know a late twenties something you know tatted and an earring here and there but very well spoken talking about the 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 the, the various notes of the grassy notes and this bourbon and the the hint of violet and this gin and so on and and uh, really sort of swishing around the place you know like good job good life and then when there's an announcement that there's a pathogen on the loose uh next thing you know uh, she just completely transformed it and i you know I, I, as i mentioned to you I thought this was a temporary hysteria. I mean, I, I thought maybe it'd last 48 hours, you know. Um, but I, I drove up to the, the place, you know, dressed as I usually do. I just so happened to be in a, a small, you know, convertible race car, you know, with a, with a scarf flying in the air because it, it was a nice day. Drove up. Uh, well, she was dressed uh, um, with... Uh, you know, obviously a, a mask, you know, like completely over her, her face, uh, uh, blankets around her, you know, puffy house shoes and 
uh, just covered from head to toe, you know. She looked like, you know, uh, like a Taliban wife. And and I walked up there and I said, uh, so what's going on around here? She said, well, we're, we're making, we've converted all of our uh, distilleries to, um, instead of making a liquor for people's enjoyment, we're making, we're making now hand sanitizer <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> to uh, protect people from the dreaded pathogen. I said, oh, that's really great. Um, can I have a, a dozen bottles of that? Because I want to buy them as souvenirs to give them out because this is, you know, it's got, got to be one of the most hilarious uh, moments of <laughs> life. And she said, she said, I will not sell you uh, a dozen. I'll sell you one. And can I say I find it deeply offensive that uh, you're out for a joyride in the middle of a pandemic? <laughs> Well, this is my first exposure to the, to the social justice, uh, to the Corona justice warrior, you know, class. And, and I was startled. And I said, you're serious, aren't you? And she said, <laughs> she said deadly serious. And, and so she threw me out. And so I drove home and I thought, well, can you, can you imagine such a thing? But when her boss finds out that uh, that that this employee was so rude to me. He's going to be undoubtedly very upset. Well, and I don't usually do this, and I wasn't trying to get her in trouble. But I wrote I wrote the owner and I said, "You've got to do something about your employees. They seem to have gone insane for this disease thing." <laughs> and he uh, never answered me, but I didn't realize it at the time. But that 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 there was a kind of hysteria had swept. Uh, a, a major swath of, of the Northeast of the United States, especially the young and well-educated. And I, I couldn't understand it. And uh, because it's almost like these people never paid any attention to ninth, ninth grade cell biology. You know, they, did, they really did not understand that, that the way to boost your immune system is, to be ex- is through... Uh, a regular daily exposure to the mildest version of the pathogens is a way of protecting you from severe outcomes. And the biggest danger you could ever face is a naive immune system. That disease, you know, pathogenic avoidance is 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 a is a catastrophic uh, way to go about life. I mean, that's that's how uh, whole whole tribes and peoples have been wiped out in the past history. But but you've got now a whole generation, like I say, the. Um, never experienced any of this stuff, uh, I guess. They've always been just, it's the medicated generation or something. It's just, it's just waiting for the shot, waiting for the pill, waiting for the, um, for the doctor to care for them or something like that. And, um, and, 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 and actually in a Hegelian sense, there's something, there's, it's not just ignorance that was driving us. I gradually learned that what you have is a search for meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of this this generation, I would put it like the the under thirty fives. You know, uh, too much education, too much credentials, uh, the expectation of, of privilege and uh, uh, and prosperity. You know, forever um, that they had been robbed of any kind of real challenge in life, and the, and human beings need that. You know, we. We, we want to be part of we want we want to be part of a bigger story and and for whatever reason we constructed sort of a bourgeois framework of of endless peace and prosperity uh, and and debt 
<laughs> for 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 several generations of people, so they never experienced any kind of challenge. So when the when this when the pathogen came along and CNN screaming this and CDC saying that and Fauci saying this, it, for a lot of these a lot of these people, it was there there now a great chance for their lives to become meaningful, to enter into some sort of big drama, to make a big sacrifice, you know, to be part of a wave of, 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 of enthusiasm in the old sense of the, in the Belloc sense of that term, enthusiasm. And, and, it, and, it, and it gave them a sense of, of purpose and meaning that they previously lacked. So the coronavirus for a lot of these people um, became a, a kind of a substitute for a, a, a fill-in for what they're really looking for was, was some uh, raison d'etre, you know? Uh, what is the purpose of my life? What am I doing here? What can I do to achieve it? How can I really matter? How can I make my life meaningful? And, and the virus became, you know, that sort of philosophical rallying point in absence of a kind of a robust religious faith or, or any other deeper sense of meaning, uh, which they had been robbed of. Uh, for the, their entire lives, so I, th- I think that's what it is. Older generation, you know, had a, a different life experiences, so they didn't have that kind of uh, uh, that great challenge, that a great Hegelian questioning of, of the meaning of their lives. But for a whole generation, I think that's what it, what it really amounted. Mm, I, I think some of that behavior that you've discussed. It, 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 here's the interesting thing, I suppose, and perhaps there's a correlation here, but. Um, liberalism is often cited as like the cause of this type of problem in the sense that, you know, we've got these privileged, educated people. There's not enough jobs to go around. The the market has created these situations. I I personally think it's, it's a flawed analysis of, of what's occurred, but, but I do wonder if there is some truth to it. What's your, you know, when, when, when commentators are looking at, the flaws of liberalism. What? What? Do, what, where, what? Is there any critique that you think is valid? And if so, what's your, you know, what's your what's your take on the the broader critique of liberalism? Well, it is the single most powerful critique of liberalism ever made. Uh, in fact, it's so strong that I think sometimes all the rest is just a footnote. Uh, Carl Schmitt, I think, was the most powerful. Uh, articulator of this view in his 1932 book called um, uh, po- Politics, uh, the, the Question question of the Political, I think is the name of the book. And it's definitely, and you know who Carl Schmitt was, right? I mean, he uh, eventually, of course, became uh, uh, a Nazi and uh, was dragged for Nuremberg even, uh, but they let him go because they said, well, he's just a stupid philosopher, who cares? Uh, read his 1932 book, and it's a fascinating book um, because it says liberalism po- uh, posits uh, a life without politics, and and his uh, his bête noir in this case is Benjamin Constant, you know, and uh, Constant's really great 1930, yeah, 1930, uh, no, sorry, 1830 essay called uh, the difference uh, of the liberty between the liberty of the ancients and the moderns. Um, we don't have to go into that, but the point is that that Schmidt hated this guy, and he said, "Look, you know, there's this guy 
Stunt who imagines that bourgeois life is, is meaningful, you know, where you just get along with people and you trade and you find value in others, has equal dignity, and you go and you shop and you consume. And he says, to hell with that. That's just a boring and irrelevant uh, life, and it's going to bore people to pieces. Uh, what we really need is, is, is politics. And politics, in other words, liberalism imagines a world without politics, according to um, Schmidt. And so what we really need, if we believe in politics, and we should, is that there always needs to be, if we're going to preserve politics as a way of life, we, there always needs to be a strong friend and enemy distinction. And that we need to know who the enemy is. They need to be identifiable. We have to have a conception of, what, of who the enemy is. We need to know who our friends are. We need tests to find out who our friends are and who our enemies, who our friends are and who to rally, who to, to whom to we owe our loyalties and whom should we hate. And he said, enemyness needs to be much more than just an abstraction. You know, it needs to be real. We need to see evidence uh, of, the, of the enemy being slain. And we need blood um, so that we can really enter into this great uh, drama. And, and he said, you might ask, well, who is the enemy? And he said, and Schmidt said, look, it doesn't, doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. You know, let other people choose who that's going to be. The point is that it has to exist. There has to be an enemy. We have to have friends. And that's what gives life uh, to politics. Um, and, the, and, and, and liberalism never can never work uh, because of this absence of, of, of drama and meaning that only politics can give us. So I think this is a very dangerous but compelling critique. And I don't know if I have a very strong answer to it except to say that within bourgeois society and, and structures of human liberty itself, uh, we need to find ways that people can live a dramatic life. You know, they, people need to face risk uh, to, uh, to have an opportunity for, for overcoming uh, great uh, barriers. To, 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 in the course of your normal life, to face the possibility of humiliation or loss of social status or bankruptcy or, or, or disease, these kinds of things, these challenges, you don't have to create those. Those exist as part of the structure of, an, of life itself. Unfortunately, what we've done is we've wanted to preserve liberalism while draining it of all of its risk and, and creating, you know, the, the, the aspiration to make extremely comfortable lives for everybody through the endless accumulation of debt, uh, through, you know, the, this entitlement mentality uh, and so on. And unfortunately, it's just, it's, it's boring. You know, a liberalism, a safe liberalism is just too boring to people. And they began to look for, for ways uh, to live more meaningful lives. And so I think <clears throat> as we think about a post-pandemic world, if we decide that we believe in human rights <laughs> and, and equality and equal dignity again, we need to figure out ways to reinfuse uh, the liberal experience with the natural uh, dramas and risk of, of life itself, instead of always creating you know ever safer playgrounds uh, and and ever less financial risk and ever less opportunities for for entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. We need to we need to we need to remove and and could say nothing of you know the 
healthcare systems, you know, guaranteed everything, you know, is what we've done to liberalism. I, I would say we need to reinfuse uh, uh, life with this, with this natural and normal sense of, of risk and, and danger and, 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 and permit people to enter into that world and not judge them for it, uh, knowing for sure that, that through uh, danger comes, comes a sense of, of challenge and, 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 and ultimate victory over, over all the odds. Um, I'm sorry you've kind of unleashed in me this um, soliloquy, but, I, uh, uh, but you only need to look at, I don't know what goes on in the UK, but in the US for like the last, I would say like 30 years, Games for at children's birthday parties are never about competition anymore. You know, pin the tail on the donkey, everybody wins. You know, musical chairs, forget it, because that means there's only enough chairs for the people who you know happen to grab one. And there's always one one kid crying in the corner because he didn't be, get to down. All those games have been eliminated from childhood experience now, so everybody's a winner. And then the grade inflation, everybody gets an A. You know, uh, <laughs> or or kids sports. You know, forget. Forget it. The idea uh, that you're going to let the best player, the best batters, you know, bat before the worst batters, or the, or the best person at pitching pitch. No, everybody gets to be a pitcher. Everybody gets to be a batter. This is this is the way we've reconstructed our lives. Well, this is dull, and it gives rise to exactly. It gives it. It, it makes Carl Schmitt's um, critique of liberalism actually very compelling. Mm. Well, you, I, I liked your description of. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but you, you you said that the libertarians, you know, in some way haven't shown up. But um, <laughs> um, but I wonder again if it's extremes because I, I spoke to someone um, on the show who is traditionally of a libertarian, strong libertarian uh, background. But it was the it was the idea that libertarians will have free agency as long as it doesn't ha- come to harm the harm of others. Now, when you're positioned with this idea that you've got this circulating pathogen and just by breathing, you could kill someone, you know, this is how this this idea, oh, but hang on a minute, I, I, my, my, my free agency now comes with risk. And, and the reality is freedom does come with responsibility, but when it comes with this flawed perception of risk, and uh, so I wonder in some ways that the, 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 like the last 5% of the bell curve, if you will, of this idea of protecting people from harm is underpinning some of these things because, you know, the harm from losing, the harm from competition. It, it's, 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 yeah. we, we can't hurt people's feelings. We can't hurt yeah. each other. You know, it's, 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 I mean, the amount of times I've, and I try to break through it every time it comes up, like self restraint. It's like, if, if I can't speak my truth, then what can I speak? But I might offend someone in doing so. It's, we, we get, we start to just numb ourselves out to this nothingness. Oh, it's just pathetic. And, and this argument, which I don't think I've ever engaged because it's very difficult to take seriously is this level of didactic rationalism. You know, the libertarians with their, with their non-aggression principle and then applying it to, to uh, uh, the coronavirus, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable the, the, the level of, of confusion and actually, quite frankly, stupidity. Uh, uh, that's associated with this position. I just think that it's unbelievable. I mean, well, I'll just make it an obvious point. You need exposure to pathogens in order to protect you from, from more serious ones. And, and uh, far from being aggression, 
uh, somebody, uh, you know, g- giving you a, uh, a, a, a cold, if you, if you could possibly contract trace such thing, which you can't, um, you know, if you shoot me, I definitely know, uh, who did it. But, but if I'm, if I'm out going to the store and, and hanging around at the bars and the, you know, I can't, and I wake up tomorrow and it's sore throat, right? there's no possible way for me to be able to contract trace that. It's ridiculous. But what's remarkable about this is, you know, getting sick and then recovering builds your immune system. Okay. So, so the, the libert, the, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed even to talk about this because libertarians are in many ways my tribe, but they're just, they just are so flopped so miserably uh, during this last two years. So what they don't don't get is that it's not necessarily aggression. It could be benevolence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, old-fashioned vaccines gave you a pathogen in order to build your immune system to overcome them. That's not a- aggression. That's benevolence. That's beneficence. That's giving you a gift. Okay. So how do you toggle between those things? They always describe uh, pathogenic spread as a negative externality. Well, how about what? If, what if it's the opposite? What if it's a positive externality? You know, especially in a world where everybody's going to get COVID. Uh, you want people to recover and 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 be stronger than ever. So the the libertarian position on this is is so uncomplicated and and idiotic that um, uh, they they couldn't even again think through cell biology. They can't even be, you know they could sit sit down and read uh, a thousand page treatises by uh, Hayek, but they can't be bothered to read a fifty page manual on uh, cell biology for dummies. You know. So I'm sorry. I. That subject infuriates me. But every, so the thing is that every every ideological uh, group had its excuses for going along with the ruling class narrative at the time. The libertarians, you know, were uh, especially somehow good at that, implausibly so. But it's it's true. I'm not sure if I answered your question. You, you I, did. I, I, no, I think I think it's important to recognise because there's just so much. I think groupthink, uh, dominant ideologies, media influences. It's it's just been palpable. And I know that uh, Matthias Desmet has written about this extensively. Um, his new book is going to talk about some of these concepts. This is, I think these are particular problems of the digital always on world that we live in, whereby, you know, we used to go to the corner shop to buy a newspaper to understand what's going on in the world. I'm just about young and old enough to remember that. Um, certainly growing up my father reading the newspaper every evening that's how he got his information but it's it's we we now have this always on world and the, the we, we don't live in a space where information is uh dissected and um critical points are put around we live in to, in in accordance with the algorithms we live in amongst cancel culture we live in a world where critical voices are deplatformed uh, increasingly so. So actually our ability to discern and make sense of the world has been limited by this. And some people are describing this as a victory for democracy. I, I don't understand the, because the aggregate, the, the, the aggregation principle says you need full information <laughs> in order yeah. for it to, to work. Um, well, and in, in particular with the, with the issue of, 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 of pathogens um, and infectious disease, for some reason, for decades, we've we've gotten into this into this mindset, mindset that, that avoidance is always the answer, um, and it's not. It's not the answer. Um, uh, I mean, avoiding all pathogens, you know, is, is going to destroy uh, society and destroy people's health. Um, and I worry sometimes. And I, I had a person ask me this this question. It was very early on in the pandemic. 
you know, a real champion of vaccines. He said, do you, he said, do you think there was some sort of turning point with the chickenpox vaccine? I said, well, why is that? Because, well, in the old days, it was always understood that, I mean, even dating way back, uh, uh, that exposure is, is the path to health. Uh, that was true even for things like, like polio, despite getting a very good vaccine. That was very, it was a very stable pathogen from which you can vaccine. But the chickenpox vaccine came about in, I don't know, the 1970s, 1980s. And so now you had the first generation of history that really, at least in the 20th century, that wasn't deliberately exposed to chickenpox. Right. So, and you're probably not a little old enough for this, but there were, it was very common that, uh, and this is science based, uh, good public health, that you want your kid exposed to chickenpox as early as possible so that the consequences of getting it would be, uh, would be minimal uh, and that you would d- develop lifetime immunities to it. So, uh, uh, when one kid in the classroom would get chickenpox, one parent would would excitedly call all the other parents, and they would immediately hold a me, you know. And that's that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't dangerous. That wasn't um, reckless. That was that was good practice of public health. And then the chickenpox vaccine came along, so that was the last time that exposure was in any sense uh, connected with uh, with the functioning of the immune system. And so, so you had several generations raised to believe that uh, shots were always and everywhere the key to health. Shots and pills, you know? And, and that really did change people's, I think, attitudes because it wasn't a tactile experience anybody really ever had uh, to, to inform them about the, the reality of, of, of pathogenic immunity. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a simple, simplistic explanation, but it, it is a symptom of something you're you're talking about that's a much more broad thing, which is, you know, that the way we've constructed a world to minimize uh, exposure to any, any dangers yeah. to the maximum extent. In fact, that's the whole purpose of life. Eliminate all risk. Eliminate all competition. Never hurt anybody's feelings. Everybody has to live in a super safe space of our own construction all the time. Well, that makes us very, that makes us very vulnerable to be, to be manipulated by these uh, by by things like you know infectious disease panics. Yes, Jeffrey, I've lost track of time a little bit. How are you doing for time? Well, I'm doing fine. I, I could probably do another uh, you know 15 minutes or so if you're up to it. Yes, absolutely. I want to get to some point of at least inspiration and hope for the future, <laughs> so that we have a, we have a, we have a kind of a discussion around where you know in the face of all this because it's it's. It's it's like a it's like a palpable background noise. Like it's just there all the time now. Everywhere you turn, this cultural safetyism, this authoritarianism. You know, in the UK right now, we've got a war on free speech. We've got the online safety bill. We've got the police bill, which is threatening dissent. We've got the Human Rights Act reform, which is threatening our human rights in the UK, long held human rights. And it's uh, politicians are becoming more authoritarian. The democracy index is at its lowest point since its inception. Amongst all of this, we've got an economic crisis mounting, which is going to likely, I would have thought, lead to some sort of mass civil unrest if it isn't hasn't already. Uh, it's, it's, it feels pretty bleak. So I, I'd like to at least spend a portion of time talking to some degree about solutions. And, and and I know that some of the work you're doing at Brownstone right now is kind of a um, uh, post-mortem of what's gone on in order to extract some of those lessons. Um, 
Uh, I think that's a very important component. You know, the UK is going through a public inquiry process at the minute, but I hold up zero hope for this political process. Yeah, so those have all been stopped in the US. So it's, it's interesting it's still going on in the UK. And I think, yeah, there's, you're right, there is one in the UK. And it's fairly broad-based, right? I mean, it includes uh, thinkers from a variety of different perspectives. But I don't know how you reconcile uh, zero COVID with, uh, with the views of somebody like Sanetra Gupta. I don't know how that... I don't know what that report looks like in the end. I mean, it's probably just going to be completely incoherent. But in the U.S., there's no commissions at all. They uh, a year ago, they were <laughs> the lockdowns were all priding themselves in their glorious achievement. <laughs> so they got they got funding millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars from this foundation, that foundation to hold a big commission. But then, as cases rose and and public anger grew, and you know, it became obvious that they it destroyed a whole generation of, of kids in their education and businesses were failing all over the place and mental health crisis and everything else. So they disbanded the commissions of the U.S. So unless something happens, well, we will not um, uh, have good postmortems. And so that's a lot of what Brownstone's doing right now is we're working, I would say, you know, fairly behind the scenes to um, put together a, a template for, for uh, commissions. And these commissions should be uh, everywhere. They should be... Uh, in every city, every state, uh, in every every nation in the world, we've got to figure out who did what to whom, what they knew, what they expected, what in fact happened, what the science was actually saying, not what the not what the uh, uh, not what the ruling class experts claimed the science was saying, but what it was actually saying at the time. So, so we need the truth uh, more than anything else. I mean, that's just we need to know what happened, and not just pretend like it didn't happen. And then we need to know the truth about what happened. So that's that's the first step. If we can get that part done, I think that's 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 the essential step towards recovery and reconstruction. And, and then, of course, then the really hard part uh, starts, which is um, dealing with uh, you know fundamental philosophical issues concerning human liberty and human rights and issues of equality. Um, and I think that's going to take a, a generation. These things don't happen uh, overnight, as as, as uh, Thomas Kuhn says in his book *Structure of Scientific Revolution*. Sometimes uh, the failed orthodoxy can persist, you know, uh, as long as all the practitioners of it are still um, living and breathing among us. So sometimes it takes a full uh, change, you know, of a, of a full full generation. Like everybody has to has to retire and be gone before you get new people. But the question is, what are the new people going to believe? And I, I think that's that's the real uh, challenge we face. And as you say, the problem is we're doing this in the midst of a growing crisis. You know, the economic crisis alone is, as you, as you suggest, likely going to be terrible and cause a doubling down on the very problem that we're trying to get rid of. I mean, I'll just give you an example. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It plays into the themes you're talking about here. Um, you know the the attempt to to eliminate all all risk and all downside to life and all sadness and and all uh, 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 natural forces work in, in the world. I mean, what happens if in the attempt to suppress the inflation, uh, we uh, the the uh, our lords and masters, you know, uh, prompt a, a, a depression, you know, a, a declining productivity and technical depression. Um, alongside an inflation you know uh, how what's going to be the response to that now in an ideal world what you would have 
is uh, 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 fiscal and monetary elites would say, well, there is a bubble. We went too far with all the spending and the and the mo- and money creation and, and all the stuff and, and uh, everything you see in the world right now is an inevitable consequence of that. So let's turn off the money printers, uh, to turn off the spending spigots, let the correction happen and give it a couple of years and then we'll be back on the road to recovery. Okay, that that will never happen. I'm sorry to say that there is nothing alive in UK or US politics or European politics anywhere in the world that's going to let that happen. We have a, a kind of an ethos that, that, I mean, for 40 years, it's been 40 years since we've tolerated that sort of thing. Let the downturn take place so that we can build a good basis for prosperity in the future. That will not happen. So you're going to get more spending, more money printing, more of the same nonsense that, that's harmed us so badly right now. So this, this attempt at philosophical rethinking of the basis of civil society uh, is going to occur within, within the framework of, of an economic calamity, uh, not to mention a, 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 a deep political crisis uh, for the ruling class of all parties in all countries. So that is, that, well, if you want to live in exciting times, these are the exciting times for sure. Uh, I don't mind it so much because I think what's happened to us is uh, Schumpeter wrote this in, in his book that he wrote, I think, during World War II, I think it might have been 42 or something, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, said the problem is that prosperity um, uh, contains the seeds of its own destruction because the more prosperous people get and however many, as the generations go on and on and on, they forget uh, the source of, of the good life. They're enjoying the good life, but they forget what gives rise to it and they began to eat it and destroy those institutions that gave rise to it because they were out of sheer ignorance. Um, and maybe that's true. And Hayek said the same thing in his 1946 article on the intellectual origins of socialism. He ends it by saying, um, no people love liberty as much as those who have lost it uh, in, in, in that generation. Um, and he says, I hope we don't have to get to that point in the West before we uh, make... Uh, liberty and exciting intellectual and life project again. Well, we have lost those liberties as much as you could ever, I hope, describe that. Uh, that has happened to us. So I hope that, you know, in Hayek's sense, this, pr- this prompts a kind of rethinking uh, of the, the relationship between the individual and the state, between our community functioning and, and, and uh, r- ruling class mastery over society. Uh, we need a kind of a philosophical revolution, a complete rethinking, similar to uh, what happened in what was the 13th century with the Magna Carta, or or, or the 18th century uh, uh, rise of the Scottish Enlightenment, and and uh, and so on. We desperately need that, or what almost happened after World War One, but didn't, for a variety of reasons. We need that in the in the 21st century. Just a, a dramatic rethinking of everything. And, if, and anybody who tells you that we don't need that is 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 not facing the truth. The crisis is real and massive and global. And so too is the need for a complete cultural and intellectual uh, revolution. If we continue down this path, uh, we're gonna, the disasters in the last two years are gonna look like nothing compared to what we're gonna face in the future. But we still do have a chance to turn around. The problem for people like you and me is that we don't have the ability to do this on our own, you know? We make our best shot at it. I think we're doing good work, uh, 
That's why I started Brownstone. And I'm thrilled that our 50 million readers, and, and I think it's, it is making a difference. Everything we publish, we publish in the, into the comments so that it gets maximum exposure and, and maximum reprints, and that's all good. But it's going to take many, many individuals like yourself and many institutions like Brownstone in order to uh, achieve this. And I, don't, I don't know what other path there is. There's a role for everybody in this, uh, even p- political activists, um, intellectuals, political activists, writers, journalists, um, common regular people who are bringing the lawsuits, uh, who are, 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 are writing the letters to the editor and speaking out to their friends and neighbors. Everybody has a role when civilization is sweeping to destruction. Uh, there's a role for everybody to enter into this intellectual battle in order to save what it is we love. Incredible. Yeah. Jeffrey, I'm seeing the seeds of this happening everywhere. Organizations like Brownstone emerging, Elevate our organization. There's individual thinkers, writers, uh, organizations emerging. We're kind of loosely connected, but not necessarily interconnected I think at this stage, you know, there's there's lots of people in different and disparate communities doing work on this type of thing. Um, you know, I do see, you know, people have started to describe it as, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like the simplicity of just putting the term neo in front of anything to make it sound new, but this the neo-enlightenment phase where we're, we're, we're entering into a new epoch of thinking. But, but, but some of those historical moments where, you know, significant treaties or, uh, new, I, you know, new ways of living have come to 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 to, uh, to, to being. I, 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 at this stage, whilst there's there's certainly a lot of intellectual philosophizing about what's happening right now, the the mechanics of translating that thinking and a new philosophy for the world that we're living in right now to actually shifting our culture. I don't even know where to begin in terms of actually proliferating that other than the fact that these communities are, you know, the, the fact that you're reaching 50 million people, we've reached, you know, a humble 10 to 15 million, but we're, we're clearly engaging people in the conversation. I think, I think there's an element of reach, but what's your take in terms of actually going from that kind of making sense of what's going on in the world, uh, kind of the, the, the kind of looking back, but also looking forward, how, how, how do you see it actually playing out? I agree with you. I think it's a generational piece of work, but actually, how does it culminate? Do you think you know what what's what 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 will create the ultimate shifts? Uh, you know, at the end of the religious wars in Europe, it's it's fascinating how they kind of kind of what what prompted the you know the Treaty of Westphalia and the and the eventual emergence of this idea of religious liberty. It really was a kind of a social and and civilizational exhaustion. You know, the the costs. Of winning are just too high. The the the, the blood that's shed, the the trauma, the uh, the uh, sheer destruction that emerges from the Schmidtian world of friend and enemies, is is not making life better. It's making it much worse, and and that became clear. And this great experiment and just letting people sort of believe what they wanted uh, seemed to have more or less <laughs> worked out. And then it became codified and. And treatises, you know, in favor of, of, of religious liberty, and then that gradually unfolded over the centuries. And that's a very Victorian sort of uh, style uh, tale. But I think it's I think it's more or less correct. Um, so the, this point of exhaustion: um, Are we there yet? 
Uh, I'd like to think so. I'm not sure. We may have a while yet to go. But that's that's usually what happens, is that people just get tired of, of the fight. They just like, is there a better way to live? Uh, maybe just getting along with other, other people and recognizing the equal dignity of everybody and letting people just kind of, uh, you know, letting this society function and the market function on its own without the Bill Gateses and Anthony Fauci's and Jeremy Farrar's telling us you know, how to live. <laughs> I hope we get to that point. You know, we have gotten to that point in the past where we said, well, you know, the heck with, you know, we let the, the kings and the popes and the bishops and lords uh, tell us what to do and it didn't really work. So why don't we have a different system? And I hope that we, uh, we arrive at that same conviction with regard to the scientific media uh, ruling classes of our own time and to say they have not made a better world for us. They made everything even worse. So we don't exactly know for sure what liberty and equality um, look like, but why don't, we give it, why don't we give it a shot? Something's got to be better than, than this endless war, I hope. Mm, I, yeah, I, think, I think my personal feelings are just at the beginning. Um, I feel like yeah, I'm no author. Uh, I'm a reasonable writer, but I feel like the, the Orwell Huxley and me wants to write a story about where I see this heading before it gets better. Um, there's some trajectories and trends along the lines that we've witnessed in the last couple of years that in some way I feel like have to play out in order to get to a point where people finally say enough's enough. I don't know if the economic crisis will push people that far, but I think certainly there's going to be some of this, you know, we know best technocratic uh, technological advancements that, that that will push this storyline even further into the future. Um, and, you know, what, we ha- what we'll have to endure before we get to that point of neo-enlightenment, I think we might, we, but, but at least the seeds of the change are sweeping, but, but, you know, anything's possible. I remain ambitious and optimistic that, we can affect change. A long term, long term. And in any case, um, the, the one way to guarantee failure is to do nothing. So, Absolutely. We can't guarantee success, but we can guarantee failure. Uh, and, and not holding this podcast, not writing articles, not, not dedicating ourselves to, to this, to this n- neo uh, uh, enlightenment, to a new renaissance, I guess you could say, um, is, is, a, is a, a very destructive path. You know, in the end, um, uh, history is built by the ideas we hold, and nothing else. You know, there's no there's no meta gods di- dictating some trajectory of history, some winds of change that sweep over us. No, I mean we we build our own lives based on our beliefs. That's why they want to censor us. You know, that's the censorship is the is the the, tri- the tribute that the ruling class gives to the power of ideas, you know, which are always more powerful than than armies, or guns, or, or money, or resources. Uh, the things you believe about yourself and about your neighbors and your friends and the kind of society you want to live in that ultimately become the building blocks for what the future looks like. So we should never underestimate that. The power of, of speaking, the power of writing, and the power of, of influence. It's sometimes just a pebble on a pond, but the waves uh, can, can extend for miles. Thank you, Jeffrey. This has been a thoroughly insightful conversation, and we managed to inject a little hope there at the end through uh, <laughs> the seeds of change that is that is beginning to create. And I absolutely thoroughly agree with you. You know, it's 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 that that ripple effect that becomes a wave. I speak about that really really frequently on this show, um, and it's those that are willing to get out there and create those initial drops that uh, that that will be the ones that create the splash that create something 
that will eventually become a wave of change. So uh, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. For, for our audience, um, I invite you to check out Brownstone Institute if you haven't already done so. You can go to brownstone.org. Uh, it's been one of my go-to sources over the course of the last uh, uh, month, certainly since um, the Brownstone became uh, a thing back in May last year. Um, alongside the likes of Collateral Global, Global. There's, some, there's some really great organizations out there that are examining with a critical lens what's happened over the last couple of years, um, uh, but also taking a broader view of what this means for society and how we can uh, continue to live in a free and open world, uh, free and open societies, um, which is which is increasingly, well, the dominant conversation of the day for us here on, on, on the Elevate podcast. So uh, thank you, Jeffrey, and thanks to our audience of, who have uh, watched this episode. Please do hit the share button. Uh, the more people that we can engage in conversations like this, the faster that ripple can become a wave. So I do encourage you to, to hit the share. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, I invite you to go to com forward slash podcast and join our mailing list so you can keep up to date with our latest uh, conversations like this. And finally, uh, you can also check out the show in audio format on Spotify, Apple, and all major podcast platforms if you prefer to listen uh, to the audio. Uh, so thank you once again to Jeffrey, and thank you to our audience here at Elevate. I look forward to seeing you on our very next conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Elevate podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share and subscribe. And you can also check out our video versions of the show on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Facebook by searching Dan Aston Gregory. I also invite you to continue the conversation by joining our private community, the Elevate Network, and you can do so by visiting weareelevate.org. Thanks again. I'll see you on the next episode.